back. This last week, as I was uh, getting ready uh, to prepare for this sermon, I realized two things. Uh, First, there's a lot of stuff that we kind of need to get through to make sense of what we're trying to get at tonight. The second thing that I realized was how dependent everything we talk about today is on what we discussed last weekend. You see, last weekend we talked about the very first half of the gospel. This weekend we're going to focus on the second half of the gospel. And both are completely dependent on one another. The first half of the gospel defines the problem of the world. While the second half of the gospel defines the solution to that problem. Now, if you got a chance to hear it, you might remember that we started with Christmas and how we can't really appreciate just how incredible Christmas is, the fact that Jesus came to save the world, unless we can first realize that there was something from which we all needed to be saved. Remember, we kind of looked at the backdrop uh, of Christmas as really a world of darkness. And that's what makes Jesus coming into the world so bright. We get to see the light on top of that darkness And to summarize some of those thoughts, realizing just how important it is to make sure that we start on the right foothold. We said that Jesus came to save us from something. And what was it that Jesus came to save you from? Jesus came to save you from you. You see, each and every one of us has done something wrong. We've all done many things wrong in our life. And so because of that, we have added to, contributed to, the darkness that is in this world. We are the problem collectively as people, but even more than that, there is a separation between each and every one of us and God. And while if we were to trace back all the bad things into the world to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam, the first man, would introduce sin into the world, as Romans chapter 5 again confirms, we perpetuate the problem by adding to those sins ourselves. That means that none of us is blameless. The darkness that this world senses, the darkness that we can see and and know is there and know is true, is ultimately a result of our broken, sinful nature. You are your own worst enemy. Now, we have to go back And start there before we move forward to spend more time on the second half of the gospel. And this is why. If you cannot understand your own sin. If you cannot embrace the idea that it is you that has caused separation between you and God. Salvation, the second half of the gospel, is not available to you. Heavy words, right? In fact, as I look at the American Christian church, I I think that one of the greatest errors that we face is that we have a tendency to lean one way or the other. Now, not just collectively as we gather together and the way churches are led and, and are moving down the path, but individually we tend to lean on one side or the other, the first half or the second half of the gospel. If the first half is that we are the problem... The second half can be simply stated as Jesus is the only solution. If you don't start with you being the problem, then Jesus being a solution doesn't mean anything for your life. 
We tend to look one way or the other, and I think that sometimes we like to focus on the love of God so much that we, we neglect to ever talk about the fact that, that it's our sin that has created separation between us and Him. But sometimes, and maybe all of you have had an experience perhaps with somebody or some church or some group that kind of leans the other way, that we just want to talk about all the bad things that everybody does, and if only we stop doing the bad things, things will be okay. And then the error in that case is leaning towards this side, saying that, It's the sin that we focused more on. But we have to share equally in the first and second portions of the gospel. Listen, it would be like trying to drink the bottom half of a glass of water without drinking the top. You have to go through the top in order to get to the bottom. Now when we say hard words, I I know that that my desire is that people can be convicted of sin and that would lead them towards a place, a state of repentance and repenting of that sin and looking to Jesus in faith. But I also know, I know that John 16, Jesus says that he sends the Holy Spirit to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That means that it is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict people and not men. So no matter what words we say, no matter how how sincere we can be about them, we have to allow God to actually do the work in the hearts of people. But as I was preparing this weekend, I realized that if, if God has not yet prepared the heart of somebody to get past that first hurdle of, I am a sinner, you can't continue on. But I would ask you that no matter where you are and how you believe or think about that first half of the gospel, you'd follow me into the second just to try to, to log it, to hear the great goodness that is the full and complete gospel, first half and second combined. On the second half of the gospel, I want to kind of use the same example that I kind of used last weekend. We started talking about darkness, using that term as the Bible uses it over and over and over to refer to sin, to refer to fallenness, to refer to our broken nature. Jesus in John chapter 8 says this about himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 3, 16. If you don't know this verse in 16 and 17, these are ones to commit to memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. First and second half, you are a broken sinner. Second half is Jesus loves you. He's died for you so that because of your sin, he comes to deal with it. We can have salvation, eternity with God. I wish that I could leave it at that. The truth is, I mean, if if that really is true, the first and second half together is that important. And I just said it to you, I wish that we could just be done there. But the fact is, we're always going to have to go a few steps further to discuss it. And this is why. Because there are lies. Because there are lies, we must discuss further. Now, my family and I moved out to Utah this past summer, as I know many of you know. And um, in Utah, there are a whole whole bunch of new things we're learning about that state that's different uh, than here in Illinois. Because we were born and raised here. And uh, weather is one of those things. But another one is all the little creatures that are unique to high desert that we don't have here. So so one day, I was kind of cleaning up some stuff in the garage. And uh, I was kind of cleaning out the corner. There was a bunch of like wood and, and uh, leaves and stuff gotten back in the corner. And I got down and started scooping it out. And I noticed something kind of like right here in front of my eyes, you know. And so I kind of leaned back for a second and tried to focus. And it was this big black spider. 
And so I, just, I leaned back a little bit further to kind of focus on it. And I noticed on this big black spider a perfectly crisp red hourglass on its abdomen. Anybody know what that is? That's, that's a black widow, right? That's like the mother of all spiders. It's supposed to be like the deadliest spider you can find. So what do you think that I did? I caught it. I caught it. Because you, you, how many times are you going to get a chance to see a black widow spider? I caught the thing. And I went inside and I grabbed some of my wife's Tupperware. And I went and I did this and I put it around. And as I'm saying that, I'm realizing I never told my wife that I used her Tupperware for that, did I? <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> I... I, I uh, I ended up washing it before he put it back, I think. I'm pretty sure. I'm like 60% sure I washed it before I put it back. Um, and, and I caught this thing, and I put it underneath the light of our um, workbench. So I turned on the light and kind of set it there. And uh, I went inside to get our daughter. She's almost three, little Bethany. And I was like, you've got to see this thing. And I called her out there. Um, I tried to not tell Laura, like, oh, no, no, I'm just showing Bethany something I found in the garage. And finally she found out it's a black widow spider. And she's like, I don't want to see it. But I took Bethany out there to see this spider. And we sat there. I put her on the workbench, and I had it in the little thing. I kind of wiggled it and flicked at it and, and told her what it was. I was like, Bethany, look at this little spider. It's, it's, see, how, see how it moves and how it's crawling around? This is a black widow spider. It's a dangerous spider. It's supposed to be the most deadly spider in the world. And she thought it was so cool. She, sh- she shook it too. We were torturing this little thing. And then finally, when we were all done having our fun with it, I finally popped the thing out and I put it on the workbench. And I, I knew we had to kill it. So naturally, uh, I could have used tweezers, but I reached for my two and a half pound sledgehammer. <laughs> Bethany's sitting there. And I pulled it back, and I went, bam, 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 you know, because you got to do three or four just to make sure that you really got it. And uh, I think it's biblical. You know, the Bible says that whatever your hand finds to do, do it mightily is under the Lord. So I, I whacked that thing. There were guts and legs going everywhere and venom splattering. We were laughing. It was, it was a blast. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was cool. It was really cool. You should see a black widow explode. Um, I, here's why I did that. I have two reasons for why I did that. Number one, I always want to train my kids, and I've made a commitment to that, that there's no room for fear in the life of a Christian. And so even in the practical little ways, even when something is dangerous, we don't have to be afraid. And I didn't want her to be the kid who grows up scared to death of spiders and, and things like that. So I was like, no, no, not on my watch. Look, spiders are something that you can deal with, all right? You're a lot bigger than them. It's okay. And so I showed it to her. I wanted her to know and to not be afraid. That's the first reason. The second reason that I did it is because I wanted her to be able to identify what is dangerous. I wanted her to be able to spot a black widow in the future and know, oh, oh, that's, oh, I, I have a memory there. I remember daddy showing that to me. And I might need to do this lots of times with her, but I want to expose it to the light, literally, and show it to her, pull it out of the shadows, and talk to her about it, and tell her about it, and then I want to teach her how to deal with it. And the next time that I find a black widow spider, I'm going to help hold her hand, and we're both going to hammer that thing to death to teach her this is how you deal with this dangerous thing. I think that the way that a pastor deals with lies should be very much the same way with his people. I think that it is our calling and our job to drag the lie out of the dark, expose it to the light, first so that our people will not be afraid of the darkness, so that we will not fear what is evil, because we have nothing to fear. If God is in us, he is greater than he who is in the world, and we do not have to be afraid. Number one, that we wouldn't be afraid, and number two, so that we can identify what is dark. 
And lastly, and maybe the most important, is so that our people will know, know how to deal with those lies. You see, for, for the, for the non-believers, the, the people who would not say they're Christian, who come and are part of what we do, my concern with a lie is that would lead you so far astray that you might miss the truth altogether. You might, you might follow the lie instead of the truth. That's my concern. And I want to show you that it's a lie. I want to identify it for you. But for the believer, my concern is that you would be so unequipped or not, not certain of how to deal with or identify or know that something's alive that you would toil and torment over trying to deal with it instead of learning that you can have in your, in your hip pocket a sledge to nail it, be done, and then get back in the game. So we drag the lies out of the dark. We expose them to the light. We deal with them and we teach and equip people how to deal with the lies. And as I was praying through this weekend, what kept pounding in my mind is there are lies. There are lies in and around this church. What I mean by that is that every entity of believers, every collective group of people who gather to learn about and study about God will face a certain set of lies. Most of them will be culturally influenced. And for many different groups of people gathered all around the world, there might be different lies they will have to confront and deal with, right? But it's our job to pull those out and to talk about them so everybody knows and is prepared to deal with them. And for you, my concern is that there are some lies that even if you don't believe them, they're the ones you will deal with every day. You will have to wade through them to get into this church building. When you get out of here, you're going to have to scrape those lies off of your car like snow. And we must talk about them so you can be prepared and equipped to deal with them. You see, the Bible says that Jesus is the only way. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one solution. That second half of the gospel, there is only one solution. That is what is true. And the lie contends with it. I had a list of lies. I had a list that I wanted to go through, but as I kept praying, I kept sensing God say, this isn't really the one, this isn't really the one, and whittled it down to what I think is most likely you all right here, 95th campus on the west side of Naperville, literally that we will deal with when we leave here. Your kids are going to be immersed in it every day of their lives. They're going out to school and spending time with others. This is the things you're going to have to contend with. And the first slide goes like this. I was in uh, Salt Lake City, and I was uh, just working in a coffee shop, and I was sitting there reading uh, through the Book of Mormon and the Bible at the same time. It's kind of like I'm studying, you know, studying that new culture that we're in. And um, as I'm doing that, there's a woman who's sitting a couple of, of tables over, and uh, she looks up at one point, and she says to me, oh, it's so good to see you studying your scriptures. And I was like, whoa, this one's my scripture. This one's not my scripture. This is just a friend. I'm just learning about it. And then, but I saw it as an opportunity to talk with her. So I said, what's your faith background? And she goes, well, I'm Mormon. And I was like, really? I go, you're Mormon. And she looked at me with this kind of funny look and she held up her coffee and she's like, yeah, not a very good one because Mormons aren't supposed to drink coffee. And I said, oh, okay. Um, well, how, how, do you, how do you do that? Like, how do you know that it's not, you're not allowed? Like, you're not supposed to do it, but you just do it anyway. How, how do you do that? And she was like, well, truth be told, I was born and raised a Mormon, but now I'm really a pantheist. And so I'm kind of both a Mormon and a pantheist. Now, a pantheist is someone who believes that all things are God. 
okay? Or that God is in all things. It's this, it, it is not a Christian belief. It's this belief that basically is, is, uh, comes from pagan roots and everything has a God and is a God. And it's, it's a very broad, general term. But one thing that I knew is that that's not the same as Mormonism. And so I don't know if it's that I'm a jerk or I'm just inquisitive or both. But I was like, you can't be both. Like before I could even stop myself. <laughs> you can't be both. And she, uh, uh, I don't know if she'd ever heard someone like say that. And I was like, but no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, don't, I didn't mean to be rude, but you can't be both. And she like didn't even know what to say. Uh, uh, well, I am. And I said, well, you're not. <laughs> just being truthful, you're not. I mean, you have to be one or the other. He goes, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm both. I'm pantheist and Mormon. I said, but Mormonism teaches that pantheism is a lie, and pantheism teaches that Mormonism is, is a lie. Do you not see an issue with that? And she was like, didn't even know how to respond. And that's when I said, listen, I, I don't mean, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude to you. I just, I've never met somebody who would say that in that particular context, Mormon and pantheist. Now, here's the lie. And here's the lie that you will face, your children will face, others will face. And this is what it comes down to. It's this lie that there are many solutions. See, I got to know this woman's name. I've been to the coffee shop many other times. We've talked about this, continued on the conversation about Christ and the Bible. It's really fun having these great conversations with her. But I'll tell you this. Um, she believes that there are many solutions and all of them can be true. And so I said, well, do you believe that my solution is true? That what I believe is true? Is true? She goes, oh, it is true for you. Absolutely. And there's another one that's true for me and for others. And I, this, is, this is the lie. There are many solutions. But there is a fundamental, rational problem with that, first of all. Because the Bible clearly says that Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. But e even outside of the Bible, if I was just going to use rationale, I could say, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. Because multiple beliefs in this world are mutually exclusive. What that means is that each one denies the opposite. Think of it in this way. Imagine you're watching a football game. And, and the team that gets the ball goes running down the field. Goes to, touch, to score a touchdown. And, and dives. The guy dives across the goal line. And just as he gets to the goal line, he kind of goes out of bounds and gets stopped at the same time. And it's a question about whether or not he scored a touchdown. And so the referee goes to that little box, you know, and he sticks his head in that thing, and he's probably just praying, because the truth is he's going to be wrong no matter what he says. And he's looking at it, and he's just wondering what he's supposed to do, and he gets back out onto the field, and all the stands, everybody's looking down and waiting for his response, and he says, the player both crossed the goal line and did not. He both scored and didn't. <laughs> Resume play. You see, fundamentally... Scoring and not scoring are mutually exclusive. You can't get zero and six points at the same time and in the same way. Have you ever seen those coexist bumper stickers? I, I don't ever want to be rude, but the fact is anybody who has those, it has multiple different religions on there. It's got like Islam symbol on the Judaism symbol on there. Uh, some from the Eastern religions like Buddhism and Christianity on there. But if you were to talk to all four or five or ten or whatever those are on that list and say, hey, do you guys all agree? Every one of them would say, no, we don't agree. We can be, we can be respectful, but no, we do admit we don't agree. They are mutually exclusive. The Bible, of course, denies that there are multiple solutions, but rationale does too. You have to check your brain at the door to believe that that is true. And I know that most people who say that don't like believe it at a philosophical level. They hide behind it because they don't want to face what really is true. And that's sad. But there is only one solution. And it is not bigoted to say that. That's one lie that you'll face. There are many 
solutions. Next one is this. Um, I was interested in whether or not people in, in Salt Lake County were quicker to talk about faith than here. So my wife and I have kind of been doing this experiment. Wherever we go, we talk to someone at the coffee shop or in the store, and we just see how fast we can ask them about their faith and see if we can start up a conversation. And I've been amazed to find everybody's willing to talk about faith right away here too. Like within the first two or three questions, I say, what's your faith background? And they'll start telling me. So we were in the store a couple days ago, and uh, we ran into a girl, and she was just talking about, you know, um, some of the stuff we were looking at buying for Christmas gifts. And she says, uh, so she kind of started making some comments about schooling she had been to. And, and I said to her, what, what's your faith background? And she's like, well, I'm half Catholic, half Hindu. I was like, oh. I, I, I didn't do the, you can't be, I, I let that one go. Um, <laughs> see, God, God is working on me. See that? He's working on me. And so I, did, I just kind of let that one go. But um, I asked, well, you know, so what, what are you doing now? And she basically said, I'm joining the Peace Corps. I want to go onto this plantation. She told me about this country she's going to and how she's going to go out there. And she just really feels that the world is a mess. She can agree on the, on the first half of the gospel, or at least part of it, that the world is broken and dark. She can agree about that. Whether or not she'll own it, I don't know, but she can agree it's broken. And her solution to fix it, when I asked her, well, what are you, what are you going to do about this, is do good things. Just, just do good things. Now here's the deal. Can you do good things? Are we capable of doing good things in our badness? Yeah, I think we are. Absolutely. When you, when you, uh, when you give a kid a hug who needs a hug, is that a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. When you, when, when you see somebody who's in need and, and help them out or give sacrificially for somebody or, or, or just try to, try to help some random act of kindness or feed a homeless pigeon, have you helped? Yeah, you've done something good, okay? The Bible says, James 1.17, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. It comes from God. So we know that there are lots of good things. All those ultimately are because of God's grace. Matthew 5.45, Jesus articulates that, listen, there's general grace that goes out to the world. The sun shines and sets on on the righteous and the unrighteous. The unjust and the just alike receive rain. There's a general grace that everybody can have access to out there. Good things can happen. But in the context of salvation, in the context of the ultimate problem, your salvation, you are broken. The ultimate solution is not do good things. Fundamentally, there's a few reasons as to why this is the case. And the Bible will agree with all of this. Here's the trouble with the do-good things, the do-goodery. Have you heard this before? Have you heard this thing? Listen, I don't care what everybody believes, just as long as we all try to do good things. Oftentimes I ask somebody, can you qualify that for me? What do you mean when you say do good things? Do you know what the most common response is? A good thing, you just do, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt other people. Have you ever heard that? Just do to others what you would want them to do to you. And I was like, actually, that's the Bible. Whatever, you can have that one. And we go into the conversation. I, I, I'll generally ask somebody, well, let, let, me ask you, let me ask you the fundamental question with just do good things. Because there's two versions of it. There's irreligious, do-goodery, and there's religious, do-goodery, okay? I made up a word, I think. I don't know. Um, so I asked the irreligious person, wait a second. So you're irreligious, um, First problem is this. If the first half of the gospel is you are broken, you are infected with sin, how is it that you who are infected can help somebody else who is likewise infected? 
at, at the least, what you're going to do is spread the infection. Here, here's what I mean by that. If you have a blood disease, something wrong with your blood, and you want to go donate blood to, to, to help other people, no matter how badly you want to help the other people, you, you're not going to be allowed to give blood. You're denied giving blood. Why? Because you lack the very thing those patients need. Here's an even harder truth to consider. Imagine one person who really wants to do good in the world, really wants to, let's say, end world hunger. They really want to, but they're just powerless. They can't do anything about it, but they want to. And over here is the person who is an angry, twisted sadist. They just want the whole world to starve, but they likewise do nothing. The crazy truth here is that each of these people, regardless of their motive, has equally contributed to world hunger. You ever thought of that? Good thoughts do not turn into anything unless you do. So many people will sit on this and say, well, I want to do good things. I have a good, good feelings in my heart about doing the good things. Well, you know what? That might not really help just wanting to do good things. Others will say, well, fine. I've, I've gone beyond the just wanting to do good things. I actually do them. Well, then here's the real question. How is it that a person, an irreligious person who wants to do good, know what is good and what is bad? How do you define good and bad? How do you discern if something is good and bad or, or great and better? How, how do you define that? Here's how you have to define it as an irreligious person. You have to at some point create a standard of qualifiers to discern each of your actions. You have to create that. Now here's the deal. If anyone tries to create their own standard of morality, the question is, does that apply only to you or to others? Now, most people will say, listen, I've got some rules I want to live by, and I think that are really important, and I'm making my own rules and deciding what is good and what is bad. And someone else can do that too. But here's where this falls apart. Because if I believe that my rules that I have assigned, my standards apply to you, and you believe that my standards do not apply to you, you are now applying your standards universally. Does that make sense? For you to judge that my standard can't be applied to others is saying that no one else can apply their standards to other people. You are therefore becoming the ultimate authority, making yourself God. Do you see it? You see how quickly it goes down that path. I just want to do good, but I have to decide what is good, so I'm going to figure it out for myself. I think this is good, this is not good. You have to apply that out to hold a standard of morality. That is the problem with do-goodery. The irreligious person has to become God in order for it to stand. But religious people have the same problem. You see, religious people, they try to just do good things. The only difference is instead of making their own rules, they just go to God and let him make the rules. So we'll just follow all of God's rules. There's only one problem with that. The Bible. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Filthy rags. Try to do good things and see what it actually accomplishes for you. Romans chapter 3 has become a passage that I go to all the time. We know that Romans 3, 10 says that no one is righteous, no, not one. So all of your attempts to be righteous hasn't gotten you anywhere. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your hopes and efforts to do good have gotten you nowhere. Romans 3.20 says this. For by works of the law that's following righteous deeds, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
Verse 28 says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And if there is one that's finally conclusive for the religious person who says, As long as I do good things, as long as I do what God has laid out in the moral code to do, then I will achieve salvation. Doing good things will take the place of Messiah because now God will owe me. Anyone who says that has not read James 2.10 and the rest of the Bible. James 2.10 says this, that if any of you tries to keep any of the law and fails at even one part of it, you accountable for all of it. So to the person who thinks, well, I just need to do good things, I'd say, yeah, you do. To perfection. And if you fall even once, you're unrighteous. You do not qualify. You see, so some would look at the manger and say, we don't need Jesus in there. Put me in there. We don't need Jesus in there. Put my works in there. We, we swap out the Savior of the world for whatever we believe the solution is. Do you know what the last and maybe, maybe the most miserable lie that you will face is? The lie that says there is no solution. This one tends to go hand in hand with atheism more than, more than anything else. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again because I think it's really important. There are, I don't believe there are any atheists in the world. I, I, I do not believe there are any atheists. I have never met an atheist, a atheist. I have met dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of people who say they're atheists, but none of them actually are when you ask them questions. See, I was on the plane sitting next to a guy uh, a month and a half ago, and, and uh, we got into a conversation and I, pretty quickly, because he was going to Salt Lake, I asked, like, hey, so are you like LDS? you Mormon? Why, why are you going to Salt Lake? He goes, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not LDS. I'm, I'm atheist. And I always ask, I always press on that, really? You're an atheist? Just like that, with a high voice. Really? He's like, yep. And it's funny, because when I ask that question, almost all of them kind of get gun-shy that someone would challenge us. I say, how sure are you? And he was like, uh, well, I mean, I, I grew up in da 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 I was like, no, 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 I mean like percentage-wise. You know, a lot of atheists like numbers, so tell me, what percentage are you certain that there's no God? And he always says to me, he goes, well, this is almost everybody I've ever asked this question. Now, eh, like 90, maybe 95%. Talked to him a couple more minutes, he finally goes, wait, 85%. I'm like, okay, so that means there's a 15% chance that you're wrong. Do you know what that means? The guy was like visibly shaken. Here's what the atheist says. There is no solution. And worse, some, somebody who might claim they're atheist might even say that, listen, I don't care what the solution is, it's just not God. It's just not God, whatever it is. So ask the next atheist you meet. Ask someone who says they're atheist. How sure are you? Well, 90%, 99%. Someone says 100%. Wow, how are you so convinced? How, how do you know? How are you so sure? Just tell me. How are you so sure? Well, science. Usually someone will say science or philosophy or something. I go, great, um, like, give me an example. Like, like, who did you hear that from? Who did you hear from that there's no God? Well, uh, they'll try to come up with some example or somebody. And, and now, ultimately what ends up happening is you'll find that somebody will have to state their claim on something. Because here's the deal. Good science and good theology always agree. Did you know that? Always agree. So if someone wants to say a scientist or science has proven there's no God, I say, well, which science? Because I know scientists who do believe there's a God. Have you ever heard of Albert Einstein? Well, yeah. Yeah, he said he believed in God. He wasn't a Christian. He said he believed in God, though. So, like, so you, you know more than, than him? And usually the person, well, I'm not really sure who is atheist. I just know that I believe that 
It's a, so, I, so it's a faith. It's your religion. Your religion is your, well, I'm not a religious person. And so here's the deal. What actually ultimately ends up happening again, just like with the irreligious do-gooder. In order to assert that there is no God, they have to claim the knowledge that they say no one else can have. Right? You have to know everything that there is to know about God or a possibility of God and have so much control over it that you would know more than anyone else that could know. To be able to claim that there is no God, that there is no solution. This is just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and we're going to die and that's it. See, atheism doesn't even try to come up with a solution to the problem. Atheism says that there is no solution, even though inherently, Romans chapter 2 says, in the conscience of the heart of man, God has convicted them of sin. That they can know by their conscience that there is a God, that no man will be without excuse, Romans chapter 1. As these are the lies, the lies that we will have to face over and over and over again. And so just like I was saying about the, the spider pulling out of the dark and crushing that thing. No, no, just no. God has given us a hammer. God has equipped us to know what is true. That we don't need to fear what is dark. That we don't need to fear the lie. That we can enter into the world. The question of the night that I'd ask all of you is this. What's in your manger? The solution to the ultimate problem of the world, what is in the manger? Each one must come face to face with that question at one point in their life. And the answer to that question, as the second half of the gospel, will be the most important question you ever ask yourself.